Um, but this morning we have Todd Miles with us, and in one sense I feel like I'm done introducing Todd because this is his third time being here, and, uh, but Todd comes from Portland. He's uh, a pre professor of systematic theology at Western Seminary and always does a fantastic job. We love him here and his ministry here, so I'll invite Todd to come up and bring the word. We're in Romans normally, but I figured we need to take a little break from Romans for a week. It's such a heavy book, and so I'm thankful because Todd's going to be in the Psalms with us this morning. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Oh my. Well, if you have a Bible, open to Psalm 108. Psalm 108. While I turn there myself, I will give you greetings from Western Seminary and from Henson Church, and uh, they'll be praying for us when later. So I guess for this service, we're on our own in terms of prayer cover from Henson. So. Psalm, uh, Psalm, Psalm 108. Psalm 108. David, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, writes this in verse 10. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of men. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask now that you would open us up to your word and open your word up to us that we might behold the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I will never forget the summer of 1982, young teenager treated to one of the most majestic theatrical events of my life. Before me on the screen, I was witness to a story of redemption, the underdog facing insurmountable odds to ascend to the top. The protagonist had to stare down and defeat first his own inner demons before he could begin to face the antagonist that threatened his role in society, threatened the dignity of the woman that he loved, the very way of life enjoyed by decent people everywhere. On his shoulders, his shoulders, rested the hopes and dreams of a nation. No, no, the entire world, the entire world. And as the story beautifully unfolded on the screen before me, I could put myself in the role of the hero. I mean, Everyone who was there watching did the same. And by the time the movie ended, the theater's greatest foe had been conquered. And I was certain that there was no enemy that I myself could not defeat. There was no foe too large that I could not take down and no sacrifice too large to achieve my goals. For me and everyone there, life would never be the same. Those of you who were alive at that time already know the cinematic masterpiece of which I speak. No doubt changed your life too. I speak of Rocky III. <laughs> yes. And so with the movie soundtrack, Eye of the Tiger, echoing in my mind, the adrenaline cursing through my veins, I wanted to run home and begin my training that very night. But reality has a way of interfering. I mean, I'll give you a better view of myself. Look at me. <laughs> Look at me, I cannot do a one-handed push-up like Rocky did. 
I would garrote myself with a jump rope if I tried to do the things that Stallone was doing. And at the time of the movie, I was like five foot nothing and 10 pounds short of 100. <laughs> so what we often find in our life, this broken world, life rarely offers up the kind of heroes that we find in literature or in Hollywood. They, they just don't measure up because we humans are finite and we are flawed. And even the greatest true stories don't always have the happily ever after ending that we find in fiction. Life, it seems, is always harder and it's darker than we find in the myths. But in our passage today, in Psalm 108, David, the great king and worship leader of Israel, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's able to comprehend the futility of human salvation. In fact, unless God acts, there's no hope for God's people at all. But David knows that God has made promises, and he knows that God will keep them. And when he does, deliverance for God's people is certain. And victory is a sure thing. So we're going to walk through this psalm uh, stanza at a time, and, and we'll, we'll talk about it, draw some application from it. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. This is a statement of resolution, a statement of resolution to praise God. David writes, my heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. So this, this psalm begins with a statement of resolve. David is bent on worshiping God. His heart, he says, is steadfast, it's ready fully resolved to praise the Lord with everything that is in him. This is not a vow of partial praise. It's total commitment. He's going to beat everyone to the punch. He's going to outpace the sun. He's going to awaken even it. Further, it's, it's public praise. In David's statement of confidence here, his praise is not private not private. He's determined to give thanks to the Lord, exalt the Lord before a watching world. And, and, and why wouldn't he? David knows that God's glory cannot be contained in the privacy of his prayer room. The glory of God, after all, is already public. It's there for everyone to see. If you have eyes to see, it is public. It is inconspicuous. The steadfast love of God is great above the heavens. The faithfulness of God reaches to the clouds. Can't you see it? David seems to be asking. So by David's reckoning, why not praise publicly? The glory and the goodness of God, they're already discernible facts to anybody who bothers to pay attention. And I think here, before we even get into the, the guts of the psalm, we could take a lesson from David. David is absolutely unashamed to identify himself and his people with the Lord. Maybe sometimes we think that, that God is too hidden, that right-thinking people cannot discern him, and that, that, that the public identification with God, that's just going to lead to embarrassment on my part. But David knows better. 
God's glory and his attributes, they're not actually hidden, are they? Right-thinking people will not miss this. Recall the Apostle Paul's words from Romans 1. He said, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul seems to be thinking, and David agrees, that that to not discern God's power and divine nature is to think wrongly, to either ignore the evidence or perceive it and then suppress it. And both are unrighteous and willfully wrong acts. So, can be Christian. Are you a body of believers that is public with your praise? Public with your praise. I'm not arguing that you should do your best to annoy people, you know, to, to, to wait for the most inopportune time to make known your commitment to God. To, to, ba- to blast K-love as you drive through quiet neighborhoods early in the morning. That's, that's not what David's getting at here. But David was apparently happy to wake people up before they wanted. Um, I am suggesting, though, sincere declaration of the most obvious thing in the universe, that God is good, that God is loving, that God is faithful. Compare those kind of public declarations with with what the world actually thinks of the God manifest in the praises of the church. To the world, the the God of Christians, the God of can-be Christian church, might seem to be intolerant or hateful or sexist, maybe genocidal. And, and, and maybe some, most of that, no doubt, is due to the hardness and blindness of the world. And some of that might be due to the church's misrepresentation or lack of representation. Maybe we're not public with the God and Father of Jesus Christ as we ought to be. And, and, and then sometimes when we are public with him, we, we misrepresent him. We, we seek to protect our own way of life and security over and above our desire to see God's name and reputation honored among the nations. Now, it's, it's, it's surely going to take more than public praise to see the nations repent. Right? That, that's, that's not going to do it. That's not sufficient. But it's not going to take less than that. The world is dying, literally dying to know that God is loving. The world's dying to know that, that God is faithful. And more could be said of God than just that he's good and that he's faithful. And, of course, more must be said. But, but these attributes, the love and the faithfulness of God that David opens up with, they're actually two of God's favorite attributes of himself. So we should make them some of our favorite attributes of God as well. You remember that, that, that strange affair in Exodus 34 when, when Moses, he's, I don't know, he's, he's full of himself or something. He, he's, he's definitely feeling, got his courage up. He asks God, show me your glory. Show me your glory, O Lord. I mean, that, that's a big request. <laughs> God, God responds, of course, by hiding Moses from his immediate presence. Remember, he hides him in the cleft of the rock, whatever that means. 
right? It's just kind of Christianese that we sing and talk of a lot. I, I take it he hid him from immediate view from a, in, by a rock. This is profound theological stuff we're talking about here, isn't it, right? Yeah. Um, and, and then when, when Moses is protected, God passes before him declaring his attributes. And, and, and we might think, we might think that God would, you know, show me your glory. Okay. I don't know what Moses was expecting. Maybe he was expecting thunder and lightning and earthquakes and just awesome display, right? That, that Moses might not be able to survive. I, I, I don't know what he was expecting. That's probably what I would have expected. But instead, what does God do? He hides him behind the cleft of the rock, in the cleft of the rock, and then he goes before him reciting his attributes. God proclaims, this is how it reads in Exodus 34, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Moses, God, show me your glory. And God says, all right, I'll do it. Moses, I am good. I am faithful. I am patient. You ask God to show him, to show us his awesome glory. And God says, I'm good. I'm faithful. I'm patient. The love, the faithfulness of God are imminently worthy of public declaration because God has done it himself. Show me your glory, God. All right, I'm merciful, I'm gracious. I abound in steadfast love, God says. I'm faithful. If, if those are God's favorite attributes that he publicly announces, how can we who know the Lord be silent about such things? So David here is resolved to make this God public before anything is actually done, before, before he gets into the heart of the psalm, he screws up his courage, determined to trust and praise God. David's going to wake up early. He's going to beat the dawn. He's going to give thanks. He's going to sing praises without shame. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. This is a statement of praise and, and, and then a request. Verse 5 and 6, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. Verse 5 is, is more praise. David insists that God be exalted above the heavens. He demands that the glory of God be manifest over the entire earth. And again, David understands God's lordship to extend throughout the land, throughout the cosmos. So your glory, what, well, what exactly is that? Glory, have you thought about that? Have you, have you ever tried to define glory? I, I think in, in Christian circles, we just kind of assume it because we're used to talking about glory. But have you ever tried to define it? It's really hard. Bible translators tell me that's the most difficult of all the biblical terms to translate to cultures that don't have a Bible. What is it? It's the evidences, as it were, of God's visible presence among people. Uh, John Piper says, the public display of the infinite beauty and worth of God. Okay, it's still not that helpful. Glory is an adornment. 
You might recall the many places in the Bible that God's always accompanied by a great light. Artists like to portray that. You know, there's God and people are shielding their eyes from this awesome light that emanates from God. The Old Testament calls this the Shekinah glory. The glowing of God's presence and the residual light that's left behind when he's gone. Think of it as like divine DNA. People leave skin cells and and oil residues in our fingerprints when we've been somewhere, God leaves glory. (laughs) And it doesn't take a CSI detective to figure out who's been on the scene when glory's left behind. Hmm, who was here? Well, we have some glory. Must be the Lord. Must be the Lord, right? It's the Lord and him alone. So here's a perplexing question for us. How can we glorify God? That is, how can we add to God's glory when he's already perfectly and self-sufficiently glorious? And the answer, of course, is that we cannot. We, we can't generate glory on our own and give it to God. We can't do that because glory comes only from God. But we can reflect God's glory. The, the light that shines from God can reflect off his image bearers back to God. And in God's economy, his glory increases when that happens. So all through the scriptures, we see God being glorified by his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God as it reflects the power and wonder and creativity that God maximally possesses. Humans exalt God by bringing him glory. That is, by adoring him for who he is, by proclaiming to a watching cosmos the attributes of God that God alone maximally possesses. And we also glorify God by doing good, particularly when we do good in his name, acting in a manner that God would have us act, displaying to a needy world the goodness and compassion of God, attributes that, again, he alone possesses maximally. So to glorify God is really to worship him. It is to ascribe to him, to declare that these things are true of him, that that, that all the attributes that he alone possesses maximally, strength, honor, holiness, wisdom, things like that. And David here, we see, wants the glory of God to be manifest publicly. And then in verse 6, we find out why. God's people, David's subjects, they need deliverance. So this is no small ask. We find out later in the psalm that the people of God, Israel, David's people, they're literally surrounded by enemies on every side. So now we know why David, the psalmist, is engaging in praise. He's girding up his courage, so to speak. God's people, David's people need saved. And David knows what we often forget. The path to our good, indeed to our deliverance, our salvation, It runs straight through the glory of God. When God's glory is manifested through the cosmos, when the majesty of God echoes across the universe, when the name of God is magnified high above the heavens, God's children, us, we will benefit every single time, without exception. David understood that his only hope, ultimately, was in the glory of God. And why is this? Because God's glory and the benefit of his children, his people, it's never a zero-sum game. God's glory and our benefit, they're never in competition. In fact, in God's economy, his glory is maximized through the salvation of his people. 
And this is no more apparent than in the cross of Jesus Christ, the greatest demonstration of the glory of God that the world has ever seen. And if you don't understand that, or maybe you don't believe it, consider the gospel message that is preached here Sunday after Sunday. Jesus Christ died for sin, for our sin. He rose again. He conquered sin and death. And so on display in the cross of Christ is the holiness and righteousness of God as he rightfully punishes sin and rebellion. On display is the love of God as he, at great cost to himself, sends his own son, the second member of the Trinity, to die for us, delivering us. On display is the faithfulness of God as as he's on record as having kept his promises through the ages. On display is the compassion of God as he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And on display is the power of God as he conquers the greatest enemy that humanity has ever known, death, the curse of sin. On display is the brilliance of God as he outsmarts the powers and principalities of this world, turning the table on their devilish schemes, working his grand salvation through their own evil machinations. I mean, we could go on and on with all the attributes of God, showing how they are just manifest at the cross of Christ. Virtually every attribute of God is on display and it is magnified at the cross the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so it's no small wonder that in John's gospel, what does he call the time of Christ's horrific death on the cross? Jesus said, now is the time when I will glorify the Father. It's the time of Jesus' glorification. And if there are any here, lived your lives in rebellion against God, and of course that would be everyone, especially those who haven't yet placed their trust in Christ. And maybe you're intrigued by the idea of of the glory of God, bringing glory to God. I I would urge you to understand the most God-glorifying thing that you can possibly do is to repent and believe the gospel. Recognize your need for a savior. Turn to God in repentance, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. I mean, do you want to make a name for yourself? Give glory to God by repenting and believing the gospel. Do you want to do something that actually ma- maximally benefits you? Give glory to God by repenting and believing the gospel. It's the most important thing. It is the greatest thing. It is the best thing that you could ever do. Repent, believe, be reconciled to our glorious, faithful, loving God, Savior, and King. For Most of us here, you understand yourselves to be saved by God, but of course the same holds true, right? Whatever glorifies God is best for you. Whatever is best for you glorifies God. It's It's a simple matter of trust. And David here demonstrates it brilliantly. Cynically, we might think, oh, God is just, or David is just buttering God up before he gets to the big request, right? But I think that would be jaded and unbiblical. The glory of God always precedes salvation, and the glory of God is always magnified by salvation, and David is in need of deliverance, he and his people. David knows that he can't do it himself. He knows that only God can do it, so he begins where he can, the glory of God. You can't go wrong by seeking the glory of God. Sometimes we don't know what we most need. God does. 
Sometimes we know our need, but we have no idea the right path to get there. Well, seek God's glory. Sometimes you don't know what to pray for. You'll never go wrong by praying that God would be glorified. Cover all your bases that way, right? What does that look like? Does that mean magnify God, re- rehearse his attributes, pray that God will bring glory to himself through your circumstances, that God would enable you to glorify him through your response. I could go on and on here. But full-hearted, full-throated glorification of God is, is always a right and proper activity. And it's always the surest way to deliverance. Whatever glorifies God is best for his people. Whatever is best for his people always glorifies God. The two are never in competition. Look at verses 7 through 9. This is a statement of God's lordship over the nations. God has promised in his holiness, with exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter, Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Here, David is rehearsing the promises of God. He goes directly to God's own speech. These promises are old covenant promises. David knows that God's speech is reliable because of God's holiness. God can't lie. His word is going to be fulfilled. God had made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all of Israel. We could go back to to Exodus 34 that we talked about earlier. God's statement to Moses and Israel in verse 10. And God said, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's God's promise to the people of Israel. We have a statement of God's determination to glorify himself, followed by a statement of his determination to deliver his people from their enemies. The promised land would be theirs. Gilead and Manasseh are at the far corners of Israel. God's arm reaches even there. Ephraim and Judah are the largest tribes in the heart of the promised land. God's covenant promises extend to them, of course. God will protect his people from their enemies. David lists the enemies of Israel in the psalm that literally surround the nation of Israel. And we see it's not even a fair fight. God treats his enemies with contempt. Moab is likened to a wash basin. Edom is treated with shameful derision. God's going to do a victory dance on the head of Philistia. Bottom line, God will keep his promises. He will be faithful to do what we now call the old covenant. He will deliver his people. But that's the old covenant. What about us? We live on the other side of the cross. Those promises don't pertain to us in the same way. What are we to do with this passage? How does this psalm even apply to us? How is this God's word to us? One approach might be to spiritualize it and ask, well, who are the Edoms and Moabs in our life? Who are the Philistines, the the giants in your life? Well, God will conquer them for you. But I think that would be a thin reading of Scripture. Ultimately, I think the, the wrong way to read the Bible. Remember, here's what we should remember, David appeals in his time of need to the promises of God. And those promises for David, they were outlined in the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law. Christian, you're under a newer and better covenant. 
newer and better promises. And so like David, we should appeal to God to keep the promises that he has made to us. So what does this look like for us? Well, first, can be Christian. You're a church. You're not a nation or an ethnic people. But you do constitute a part of God's kingdom. Our enemies, they're not ethnic people groups or nations. Our enemies are sin, death, the world, the flesh, the devil. And God has promised you that he will prevail over all of them for you. God has promised that through Christ, you will overcome the world. Well, what about those nations that David lists? Are the nations irrelevant now in the new covenant? Well, I don't, I don't think so. The, the covenant Lord of Israel is, in fact, the one true God of the nations. He is the judge of the nations, the judge of peoples. And he is not a mere tribal deity. Of course, in that regard, nothing has changed since the death and resurrection of Jesus. God is still the sovereign Lord of all the nations. He will still demand an accounting. But there's good news. The sovereign Lord has included his heart for the nations in his new covenant. The atoning work of Jesus on the cross is powerful to save anyone who believes, regardless of nationality or ethnicity. So if you're here, you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, you need to know that the God of the Bible is not some mere tribal deity of these strange folk in Canby that show up on Sunday mornings. No. The God of the Bible is, in fact, the sovereign God and Lord of everything that he created, and his love for all that he created includes you. If you're a Christian, you need to know that your God is, in point of fact, everyone's God. He is the one true God, and he has a claim on everybody. Now, that should give us great confidence, right? The nations belong to him. Christian, you might be tempted to think that you're a Christian merely by an accident of history. You were, you were born in a place where the gospel's freely preached. Perhaps you might wonder, hey, man, if I'd been born somewhere else, I don't know, maybe I'd believe differently. Maybe I'd be a Muslim. Whatever, right? Maybe you feel that other people are doing fine in their own religious context, that you really don't have much to offer people whose lives appear to be in order if they're someplace else. I think you should rethink that. You're an ambassador of the living Christ commissioned to make this appeal. Be reconciled to God. Not just to your God, but to the God. In our, in our postmodern tolerant context, people are fond of talking about, well, my God does this or my God does that. And someone else might say, yeah, but, but my God is, is this way. Maybe, Christian, you should eliminate this idea of my God from your vocabulary and speak faithfully about the one true living God, right? He's not just your God, like in some idiosyncratic way. You worship and serve the true creator God before whom everyone will bow the knee. Your God is, in fact, the most relevant being to everybody on the face of the earth. And you should speak of him with that kind of confidence. This God is making his appeal through you. Well, we should end. Look at verses 10 through 13. This is a plea for deliverance. Now we get to the request, finally. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who, who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You don't go out, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe. 
for vain is the salvation of man. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. David has the promises of God, but he knows he's absolutely helpless to bring them about. David himself is. David's the king. He's the rightful leader of Israel, the one commissioned to lead Israel into battle. But if the Lord doesn't lead, it's as though David doesn't even know the way. He's come to the end of his rope. If God continues to reject them, that's what it felt like to David at the time, then there's no hope. So David is the only thing that he can do. He prays. He prays for deliverance. He, he, he places no confidence in human achievement or deliverance. Did you notice that? Now, now humans, as, as image bearers of God, we have great capacity to do many things. But when it comes to important concerns, we are historically unreliable. And when it comes to ultimate concerns, overcoming sin and death, reconciling ourselves to a holy and loving God, we are batting zero. Zero. We can't save ourselves. David knows that. He's come to grips with that. And we should come to grips with that too. But David also knew that if God was for them, then then who could be against them? Deliverance was sure. More than deliverance, dominance was sure. Apart from God, David and Israel, they could do nothing. But with God... Israel would triumph. Israel would do valiantly. Why? Because God would win the victory. God would utterly defeat the foe and sustain his people in victory even as he delivered them. And how much more true is that for us? Jesus wins the victory for us. Paul understood that. Remember his stirring words from Romans 8? What then shall we say to these things, Paul asks? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He goes on to say, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Can be, Christian, with Christ you will do valiantly. Now, maybe you're not feeling too valiant this morning. Maybe you were barely able to get to church without sinning too much, right? I mean, I get it. I'm a parent. We're not, that was a joke, all right? Uh, we're not left on our own. We're not left on our own. Jesus has promised to send his presence to empower and enable the church. So we exercise the gifts that Jesus has won for us, that his spirit freely gives us, that the body of Christ might be edified. With Christ, you will do valiantly. Jesus has promised his abiding presence. I will be with you always, he said, even especially in the seemingly darkest times. Jesus has promised that because he's conquered death, the church and everyone therein will conquer also. Jesus has walked through the valley of the shadow of death, and so he knows the way to the other side. So we comfort one another with the truths that this life is not all that there is. With Christ, we will do valiantly. Jesus has promised he himself will be our great high priest. He intercedes on our behalf right now at the throne of God. So we persevere in prayer and praise. We gather publicly, like you're doing right now, ask his people to do just that, to pray, to praise, even when it's inconvenient. 
even when in the world's eyes there are more entertaining and seemingly profitable things to do. With Christ, you will do valiantly. Jesus promised he's going to build his church. He promised that the gospel will go forth and that he does have sheep among the nations who will certainly come to him. So with humble boldness, proclaim the gospel. The church will prevail. You will prevail. Not because of the brilliance or skill of individual Christians, but because of the brilliance and skill of the church's Lord. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth. Not because of the cleverness of evangelists, but because of the power of the evangel, the gospel of God, and the Holy Spirit who effects faith and conversion and regeneration in hopelessly lost sinners. And you know that's true because you were once one of them. With Christ, you will do valiantly. Jesus has promised that he will ensure that you persevere. So we, in turn, persevere in doing good, especially to and for Christ's church, being willing to give and serve even when it hurts, especially when it hurts, because we serve a crucified Lord, but we do not give up because we serve a risen Lord. My friends, seek the glory of God first and foremost, because in that, we will find our deliverance. God will be glorified even as we are delivered. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, um, grateful for these words. We're grateful for you, and we're, we're stunned at your mercy and your kindness. We pray that you would give us faith to understand that in your glory, we will be delivered. Enable us to seek your kingdom, to seek your glory first and foremost, and you will take care of us. It's in Christ's name we pray.